Introducing Mortgage Matters. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. A show dedicated to helping you navigate a challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. The economy continues to face numerous difficulties. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess is an outrage. Broadcasting outrage. live from the KVEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? Talking it's about, time talking for about. Mortgage Matters. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Mortgage Matters. We're so glad that you're with us. It's July 27th, this fine, fine day here in Slow County. This is a big show today, Dan. Um, I, I caught word. You know the feds are they're meeting up. What is it? Monday, Tuesday, or Tuesday, Wednesday? Going to do the June meeting, July meeting. The June one's done. As soon as they tuned in, today they're listening. So <laughs> wow, whatever you say, they're going to do. They let you know ahead of time, huh? Yeah, you're going to affect. You're going to affect monetary policy today, Dan. Excellent. I think Bernanke doesn't he call you and ask for advice? He's texting me now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> bizarre. <laughs> So yeah, it's a uh, big couple days ahead of us here. You excited about that? I can't wait to see what kind of chaos we get into. This week I was I was thinking that, you know, things actually calmed down for the last, uh, basically since July 5th. July 5th, the market went a little haywire. Now it's calmed down quite a bit. I'm glad it's calmed down. Kind of feels like it went back to normal. Uh, we're back to good news being good news and bad news being bad news. And now, now just as we figured that out, we're going to have another Fed meeting. So that'll be interesting to see what comes of that. Yesterday, I heard somebody describe the economy as so good. What do that, you think? That I, I think that's this what people just are thinking. This is a local dude. Really? Yeah, he said um, people are starting businesses because the economy is so good. I thought, oh. So good. Well, that's good. That's good that there's someone that thinks that. I, I don't think that person's alone. I think that, you know, I, that was kind of the theme that I was thinking about as I was driving in this morning, that we've been kind of Debbie Downers for the last month or more. And um, you think it's just tied to the rate stuff too? Just gets in your head for a us, yeah. Oh, for us, yeah, for sure. Just gets in your it head. It directly a and affects just... business <laughs> every day of our lives. So, yeah, it. And I think that's a big reason for why um, you and I have been a little a little down on on what's happening in the economy. Um, we also pride ourselves in being able to understand what's going on and predict what's going on and that has been a bit of a frustration that yeah. things have been so unpredictable um so the and, and and now that rates are moving higher there's just a transition period here so change is always difficult but we're we're adjusting um but i think outside of our bubble i think a lot of people do share that person's sentiment that um that the economy is getting better. People are optimistic because their home is worth more, because their, their investments are worth their more. Investments their investments are worth more. Is worth more. Yeah, and and actually, the timely statistic: the the University of Michigan Thomson Reuters Consumer Sentiment Index reached its highest level since two thousand seven. Wow, um, six year high for that for that figure. 
in July. So yeah, it's not as it should. It's it, it made me realize that we are in our little world, um, not as happy as the rest. You know what I was thinking about this morning, what my theme was? I woke up this morning early to to get everything together and and I was I was going through all the numbers again, you know, eight point six percent, one point one percent, two point three percent, so three hundred and sixty four thousand, all these things. And I started wondering I feel like I need a little more context. I started wondering, hey, what's what is normal? So started looking things up. And not that I want to call 2005 normal, but I started looking at like initial jobless claims against um, July 2005. New home sales. What was, you know, what was new construction like in July of 2005? So just looking at all these numbers in context. And um, it's funny because 2005 was radically overcooked. For example, they they built 1.6 million new homes in 2005. the The new construction numbers were like a hundred thousand a month ish on average. A couple months that were more. That's pretty impressive. Because we see numbers today, like hey, construction is on the mend. In fact, you know, some would like us to believe that new construction is um good and it's not even 500,000 units a year that's it's very far off from what you know those overcooked numbers are but it's hard to know kind of what the norm is it's hard to have like a a barometer of of what's what's good and and what's what's a moderate or or solid growth that's not overheated yeah it's that's a good point i all the numbers that we see lately are the best since the major economic downturn. So we've had... Or the worst since. And it's like, I don't... We've had five years of of pretty bad, the worst <laughs> of. And then before that, we had five years of the best of. Right. So we need to like rewind 10 or 15 years to get something that's at least not these extremes. It may not be normal. I don't know that you can ever really find a period that's normal because things are always changing, but... These last 10 years have been extreme one way or the other. And so they're, they're not good, like you said, barometers to judge these, these metrics by. Got to kind of try to, I, at least I was thinking about it this morning is, you know, just trying to go past the headline a little bit. What does that really mean? And, you know, so like weekly jobless claims, for an example, um, I, I, this is something we track every single week. It's, it's a pretty important little metric, gives us an idea of, um, how the labor market's doing, whether it's improving or not. Um, this week, initial jobless claims rose by just over 2%. That makes sense to me. Um, I can get that. That over last week, it went up by 2%. Um, an extra 7,000 people showed up for initial jobless claims this week. And um, the four-week moving average, see, this is just talking about what it's comparing it to itself in very recent history, it makes a lot of sense. Um, the four week moving average is 345,250 initial claims. Um, and there's a two week trending decrease in that number. That's all good. And then I start going, well, how many jobless claims were there in 2005? Want to take a flailing stab at this? Since I know you didn't look it up, like 
it's hard to even remember, but um, initial jobless claims for this same week in 2005. Wow. Well, things were were buzzing along at a good clip in 2005. I'm what maybe a hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand jobless claims. It was 280. 280. Yeah. And I actually was expecting like you. I was like, well, how many people were losing their job then? Yeah. You basically just like bend down and pick up money. It was like laying in the streets. It was hanging off of the doorstep of your house. The <laughs> banks were sending you like, oh, we gave you a $200,000 line of credit on your house. Go buy something. Everywhere you went, money was just flowing. Um, but hey, 280,000 initial jobless claims. That's pretty low. Imagine what that would do for us right now. That would be really impressive. In fact, if we saw those kind of numbers, that would be something to talk about. You'd sure. have people cheersing at dinner over that. <laughs> That's a big deal. And um, initial jobless claims, too, you got to imagine is that with a labor force as big as ours um, and the benefit as good as it is, regardless of whether you think it should be more or less, there's a lot of people that take advantage of this, obviously. Um there's if you got laid off or were seasonal or whatever the story might be, then you could go get your initial jobless claim. And and I would expect that a fair amount of that was people just kind of hopping in and out or in transition or a company, you know, shutting down or merging or whatever that you're going to have some numbers. And so if that's the metric, if if 2005 was overheated, right? Because business was just going crazy, I say it tongue in cheek, like you could just bend over and pick up money. It seems like that to me. It was like kind of a fairy tale land. Um, and 280,000 people were still showing up for initial jobless benefit every week. Um, is 340 that bad? I mean, 340 well, is pretty good. And we came off these highs of 400, 500,000 plus, right? And then we hung, like we got below 400,000. And all of a sudden I hear these economists start to say 400,000 or less is a sign of a moderately improving jobs market. And then 350, that's a good benchmark too. And I kind of felt like they were trying to talk me into it. Like, eh, is it really that good? That's an awful lot of people. And, you know, in, in, Context, too, with how many people are unemployed or underemployed, the, the continuing claims, there's a lot more that goes into it that still doesn't feel good to me. But as far as people losing their job and going for an initial first-time um, benefit, that's not 340 in clipping along in that range isn't terrible. And so that, that metric actually kind of helped me to dig in there and read about that a little bit. So it made you feel better about yeah, where we're at today. made feel a little better about where we're at today made me feel like in fact we have made some progress like i said it doesn't speak to head of household jobs being created and it doesn't speak to the nation's unemployment rate it doesn't speak to how many jobs um, we need to add back but if if you're putting the old tourniquet on the bleeding 340 as a moving average is not terrible and in context of an overheated year of 2005 it makes me feel like we're right in there and so maybe i've been too hard on the initial jobless claims number try to see the upside dude <laughs> that's good well it is good to put that in context with with a year that was a boom year really boom. 
It was. Yeah, um, I, I'm not positive that I could put this in the correct place on the old bibliography here, but I feel like it's kind of my understanding that um, we're supposed to be building 950,000 housing units a year in the country to keep up with population growth and um, and houses, I guess, that are wearing out and phasing out. Um burning down, all these kinds of things. So in 2005, we built 1.6 million new homes. That's a lot of homes to be building in a year, like much more than the population growth thing. And and I guess to me it makes sense too. There's uh, people own more than one house. A lot of people had vacation homes in 2005. I think my hairstylist had one. <laughs> vacation house at the lake. Why not? Uh, and now today, I mean, what are we building today? 400,000 houses? Not that many. Yeah, about 500, a little less than 500,000 at an annual rate, which, yeah, is well below what we want. They say 700,000 is consistent with a healthy market. Okay. 700,000 new homes. Um, well, those are home sales, so not necessarily constructed homes. Hmm. I, I assume you have more homes constructed than are actually sold in a year. So, yeah, I mean, 700,000 is where we want to be as far as sales go. Probably your your number of 950 is more in line with the number we want building per year, built per year. And what's what else that I've noticed lately is the number of new projects that I've seen, not only just in general advertisements in the paper, but also there's a few big proposals. I know there's a, a somewhat controversial um, development up in the in the Pismo Beach area um, in kind of that end of Price Canyon. There's uh, a lot. I feel like there's a lot of projects going on around locally. There was a big one exciting. Uh, front page of the paper this morning. I think it was this morning. Um, the Delidio Ranch is the, there's a proposal there for Oh, another proposal. Yeah. They well, the property's the property's for sale now. Okay. And there's some folks who want to who have who have a desire and a plan for that parcel. I think it's like 130, 140 acres. Yeah, we don't have enough time to talk about all the shenanigans that have gone on over there yeah, that no. property. No, but but the point is is that there's there's stuff building going the on now. There's new stuff coming to market now. Um there's things if you're driving up 101 into the North County. There's that project. Um, I think it's called Oak Haven Village, um, just right off 101. I'm not sure how many units that is. Do they have when they say the homes? Do they mean single family homes or do they mean multifamily like townhomes? Or as far apartments? as the, what's normal, yeah. Um, they're talking about all units. I mean that, that they could be condominium units or single family residences or mm -hmm. or yeah, it's kind of total dwellings ultimately. And okay. the, when you see some of these numbers oftentimes the multifamily stuff um that can be pretty volatile. In fact, that was part of one of the headlines this week um as far as the uh the new construction stuff showing up this big fall off and of course it was all due to rates. <laughs> rates have like ruined the housing economy and, and the reality of it was is there was like a 27 percent decline in in multi-unit starts which is always very volatile the projects are big too so 
if they're building several hundred or several thousand unit complex, it can really move the numbers one way or another in a given week. The um, One of the uh, funny things, though, about this housing that I, I just got a kick out of was, um, you know, you get a little, a little bit of uh, bad news and suddenly people are starting to say, hey, well, it's it's got to be tied to the rates. Um, we're going to have rates ruining this improving housing market. And um, I just can't I can't see it translating yet. Have you do you it's been I feel like it's just now uh, July numbers are going to be where we're going to see the increased rates have some impact, not the June numbers. I mean, interest rates in June, most people that closed in the month of June or bought their house in the month of June had began their loan in May and ideally were locked at some point before then. And so now it, it just seems that we're seeing some stuff get scapegoated by the rates, but I'm not positive that, that that's all, that that's all true. So anyways, we'll see. Well, there was a lot of housing data that came out this week. That's really seems to be the majority of what came out this week um, was was new home sales, existing home sales, things like that. So um, we do need to take a commercial break here to thank the sponsors. When we come back, um, let's talk. Let's d dive into those numbers in a little more detail. <clears throat> and I think one of the points that we should hit on is the lag that these numbers, you know, are. A little biased with you know these are the june statistics that, that have come out and we'll talk a little bit about what that might mean going forward um so we are going to take a commercial break i do want to invite you to call in we're live in the studio today you can give us a call at 543-8830 543-8830 um, if you'd like to ask a question or share a comment we'd love to hear from you um, do it give us a call we're here we're waiting for you all right, we'll be right back with more what Mortgage Matters. Of generosity, look what my agent got for me. Just by switching to State Farm. A few hundred unexpected bucks, I couldn't ask for more. But now I've got to figure out what I should use it for. A new bike would be radical, but maybe something practical, like a pet baboon with one robotic arm. Get to a better state, State Farm. Switch to State Farm and you could save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. You wouldn't hike Mount Everest without a Sherpa, and you shouldn't endure the loan process without one either. At Central Coast Lending, we take the confusion, stress, and anxiety out of your loan transaction. Our experienced team of loan officers will serve as your guides, your experts, your mortgage Sherpas. Let the Central Coast Lending mortgage Sherpas lighten your load. Call Central Coast Lending today at 543-LOAN. That's 543-5626. Central Coast Lending, the mortgage experts. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley & Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley & Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley & Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. 
For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. to Mortgage Matters. Thanks so much for being with us. It's 1025 on Saturday. We're just stretching here. We're getting warmed up. You got a full hour and a half to go. Dan, I saw you stretching over there. You're like, that sounds good. Yeah, that does sound good. I was I was meaning like the in the you know vocal cords. <clears throat> do you do that on your way in? Like the way do a my, singer gets ready? My do re mis. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. And the all the like buzzing lips things and everything no. David Lee Ross should have done that the other day yeah <laughs> <laughs> was, uh, sometimes I feel like on Saturday morning the first we the first words I utter are when the microphone is shoved in front of me so my sometimes I feel like this morning you kind of have it too that like smooth jazz type of deepness to your voice that's not always there it's probably the late night drive uh Back from O.Co. Coliseum. O.Co. That sounds awkward. <laughs> Dan and I went up last night to a baseball contest. The A's versus the Angels. and Quite an entertaining contest. It was fun. Yeah. They came out swinging. Yeah, it started hot. Hits, ten, game, ten hits each team. That was fun. Yeah. The result was liked by few (laughs) just the thirty thousand that were there (laughs) there was a lot of cheering actually you know there were some big home runs there was some well-hit balls there was some uh very some good plays situational plays with some highly productive batting that you just couldn't defend against the game wasn't lost due to errors last night no so it was exciting i mean that's the kind of game that i want to go to yeah it was a fun game i've never been to like a a no-hitter shutout before and I'm not positive. That's a game. I like to watch that game like in the highlights. Yeah, <laughs> I like the hitting games. That was fun. But yeah, it was late night. We didn't get home until uh, after one o'clock, and then even yeah. you trucked on a little further. You probably got home at two. Yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. The morning came early, but you know, it's like death and taxes. We're here on the radio. Oh, I was pulling in, and I was like, "It's a like Groundhog's Day." And <laughs> yeah. I get here as I'm turning in. I see Dan's truck sitting there. It must be Saturday. <laughs> Come on, day and a half off. This is, <laughs> is going to be awesome. A couple more hours before we get some reprieve. So, Dan, you started talking a little bit about the numbers and wanting to get involved in the numbers a little bit more. Before you do, I I want to just start. Um, I'm going to start with some bad news because it's, you know, sometimes I like bad news. I know you know that about me. I'm interested. Remember all the remember all the shadow inventory 
we were supposed to be so worried about that. And, um, oh, let me, let me call you back to a few years ago, though. There was an awful lot of people getting adjustable rate loans, right? Had like a three-year, five- or seven-year fixed. If in 2006 you procured a five-year arm, okay, so it was fixed for five years, and in, in that era, too, 2006, what would you suggest that the average five-year was? Like five-ish percent? In what um, year? Like 2000, like 2006, five percent, five and a half? Ooh, it, it may be higher. Sixes? Yeah. There was a fair amount of interest-only loans, too, so you could get like yeah. a 5-1 adjustable. Um, but so check this out. If you got one of these loans, and, and I'm not saying it was a liar loan or an exotic loan or whatever. I, I There's a place for adjustable rate loans. But if you got an adjustable rate loan in 2006, 2006, somewhere in that ballpark, give or take a few months, that thing would adjust five years later. And when it adjusts, it goes to an index plus a margin, right? Those index today, like if it's based on a LIBOR, is less than 1%, and it has been for some time. So if your margin was two and a quarter, which is a pretty common margin, your loan would adjust from five, five and a half, or 6%, whatever it was, generally to about 3% right now, three and a quarter. And so if you got that loan in 2006, it adjusts to that maybe in 2011. Um, so for a couple of years now, you've enjoyed this rate that's adjusted downward dramatically. It's kind of like refinancing for free. All of a sudden, your mortgage payment goes down by three, four, five hundred $500, depending on your loan size. That's pretty welcome news. Trouble is, those loans can go back up. And... When they do go up, your payment can go up. And, you know, so we used to talk about this before. There was literally millions upon millions upon millions of adjustable rate loans that were made. And it was predicted that their delinquency rate would be a little bit lower. Um, just due to the fact that when they adjust, they adjust down. If your house payment was 2000 bucks and your loan adjusted and it dropped to 1700 You'd be excited about that. Um, so right now, in this increasing rate environment, we have to begin to recognize that, hey, some of those people are going to begin to experience their increased interest rates. And in doing so, will they, uh, will they end up going into default? And I don't know. That's something that we're going to have to track. I'm super interested to see if the increase in interest rates as our housing economy undeniably recovers is that going to lead to some slight upticks in some of the short sale foreclosure numbers that that are being tracked every month because they need to be um i i think that that's something to pay attention to for the next probably you know couple years i would guess if the housing economy keeps progressing the way that it has been I have no idea if there's any relationship to what I was just talking about in this next little news piece, but um, loan lender processing services, which is um, LDP, they're reporting that um, the delinquency rate on U.S. home loans for the month of June was unusually high. It spiked 
the delinquency rate went up to 6.68%. What's the explanation for this? They don't have an explanation for it. They've, they're not the company that tracks that. They don't know why this is happening and if it's just a complete fluke, but this is a 9.91% increase over the previous month. So you take their delinquent loans from May and add 10% to that in the month of June. And this is what happened with these guys. They suggest that in the month of June, there were 3,328,000 mortgage loans in the U.S. that were more than 30 days late. Hmm. I kind of like, really? Yeah, that's surprising. And again, it's hard to know. It's sort of floating out of context because I don't know how many home loans there are delinquent 30 days at any given time. Um, I mean, what was that number in 2005? Surely it was less. Yeah, I, I want to say an average foreclosure rate, which begins with a 30-day late, um, is around 2%. So you would figure the 30-day late metric would be a little higher and then... It yeah, because the down. severity of yeah. the delinquency. So, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I remember when we used to, at the bank, when we were working in, in loss mitigation and stuff, and we were talking about um, what is a customary delinquency rate. Because as long as you're loaning money to hundreds of people or thousands of people or millions of people at a time, some people just aren't going to be able to pay. If they get hit by a train, if their spouse walks out on them, if they're come down with cancer if they they lose their job we just learned 250,000 people are losing their jobs in the <laughs> even best then, of times yeah or or you just what just an oversight you're yeah. maybe you're in Hawaii and you just you forgot that the bill I mean you're so overwhelmed you didn't pay the bill some of that's normal um, but three million homes here which represents six. 6.7, basically, I'm going to round it up because it's the, the mood I'm in. 6.7% um, delinquency of all loans. That's high. That is high. And, and I'm curious to see if these numbers start being tracked because of the adjustable rate loans and increased interest rates maybe starting to push those around. You know, you think there's people out there that, Will still throw in the towel when the rates go up? I don't know. We'll see. It doesn't seem very common lately. We don't see too many short sales. We don't see too many foreclosures. The only ones I've actually heard about in the last several weeks were in the million-plus-dollar homes. Guys that owe a ton of money on a house that's not going to sell for near that much and bailing out on those. And those are, those are harder buyers to come by. So that makes sense that those are on the lag, but... So otherwise, market's hot, hot, hot. My next little headline here is 47% of all homes sold in June sold um, were on the market for less than one month. Wow. Crazy. Nearly half of all of the houses that sold in the entire month of June were on the market for less than a month. Are you kidding me? That is so crazy. That's so competitive. And it, it's awesome to see that headline because that's how it's felt. We have clients that we get pre-qualified and we send them out of the market and they just go from contest to contest to contest. And it's so stressful. There's so much urgency to 
rush and make this hasty decision because if you don't, there's eight other people that are going to beat you to it. And then we learned that half, nearly half in the entire month of June nationally, these homes were on the market for less than one month. Is that an overheated market, dude? That that makes me think it's overheated. Yeah, uh, that's a sure sign of an overheated market. I think that that is another example, though, of a backward-looking statistic because I don't feel like that's the environment today. You think it's cooled a little bit I do today, think it's even cooled. from June? I haven't heard the stories um, as frequently in the last month that we were hearing for the whole first part of the year about the overbidding and the, you know, I've put in so many offers and I just keep getting beat out by someone else. I haven't been hearing that. In fact, the homeowners that we've pre-qualified lately seem to get pre-qualified, find a home. It's still a pretty fast process. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, they find a home and their offers accepted on the home that, that they find. Um, so I don't know. What are, do you have a different experience with that? No, you know, I was, I was actually trying to think about that. I wish that we had Wes or one of the realtors in here to to um, give us their perspective on this, of course, because I, I feel like I have a limited scope. But um, last couple purchase guys that I've had that have gotten into contracts in this so far in the month of July... I guess I would have to say that it does feel like it's less competitive. I think it does. It, it feels that way. And um, I don't guess I stopped to think about whether or not that was that whole trend was slowing down. But I mean, what would you attribute that to? Um, I, I don't know. I, th I think the obvious would be rates have moved higher. Prices have moved higher, so it's just squeezed some people out who were at the edge of qualifying for financing, at least. Um, th other than that, it's hard to say. Um, hey, Jim, I, do you have any uh, in the music bed over there? Do you have Millie Vanilli? <laughs> do they have that? I do have Millie, Millie Vanilli. Remember that right? song they had, Blame It on the Rates? <laughs> Blame it on the rates. Wow. It was actually rain, but is everything's getting blamed on the rates right now. And I'm not positive that the interest rates have, have like shaken too much of the confidence of the guy that's out trying to buy. Although I got to say a couple of the transactions that I've been working on this month, um, where it wasn't going very well. Here you go. Yeah. You remember that riff, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These guys were awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I was sure they were. Until we found out that it they wasn't were actually them. They were frauds. <laughs> Big time phony, phony. Um. <laughs> it's, pro it's probably too early to say that it is, in fact, the rates. Oh, what I was going to say is these transactions, though, that are getting a little off track, uh, an inspection kind of revealing some unwelcome news or... An appraisal coming in a little bit short or something like this. You know what you know what I keep hearing? Sellers not wanting their house to go back on the market in this new interest rate environment. You know? So stuff like that makes me think that, that that is what it is. Well, at least it's it's front of mind for sellers, and I don't know if they're hearing it from their agent or just seeing it and making some common sense kind of uh, conclusions for themselves. But 
I would have to say that's pretty true. If you were in contract with somebody, believe they had their interest rate locked, you don't really want to let that guy away from the table right now because the next guy, if he's marginally qualified, has a diminished affordability because of these higher rates and you may not, you just may not get what you were after as far as the sales price goes. Now, this week at one point, I I caught a soundbite about construction cancellations. Um, and that was being attributed to the change in the interest rate market. Again, maybe it's the, the, the best obvious um, reason out there for cancellations. I was trying to look up and see if I could find, put a number on how many um, projects have been canceled just in the last month. I vaguely remember it being around 20% that I heard, but I, I can't find a statistic to back that up here. I've been searching for the last few minutes. Um, so I think really all we can do is kind of feel the the environment as we move through it. And then as the, as the July and August and September statistics come out, th those will be the telling numbers. What we have today are the June statistics, which, like you had mentioned, people closing, whether it be new home or existing home in June, likely were locking their interest rates prior to the big rate move. Yeah. Moves. Because yeah. really, before May 1st, we were at the just off of the all-time lows in interest rates. So that's those are the folks who closed transactions in June. Well, NAR, the National Association of Realtors, they said June's existing home sales slipped. And the reason that they cited was twofold. Um, not enough inventory and a lack of um, first-time home buyers. So though there was slightly less activity in the market prices still moved higher yeah and that's and the, that's the trend we're seeing across the nation and we saw the same thing here in county from may to june number of of homes sold actually declined but um prices continue to move higher and higher still not the highest they were in 06 07 but they're got, recovering considerably. Got some ways to go. Pretty excited uh, here that our conversation has begged the call of uh, Wes Burke. And I, I'm curious because we haven't, I haven't spent too much time with these guys lately. Um, so I'm curious to know. So first of all, Wes, good morning. Thanks for calling. Good morning, guys. I guess your ears were ringing or you were listening to the show. Which is it? No, I was listening to the show, and I, I heard you guys kind of um, trying to uh, dance around whether or not the, the the buyers have slowed down or the frenzy has slowed down. And it, I just, it just kind of struck a chord because we had this very conversation in our office meeting on Tuesday. And, uh, and Dan, the stat that you just read for the nation, um, less sales in June than May – is true for San Luis Obispo County as well, and I, I I queried the agents in my office, and everyone feels like the activity has waned. There's less of a buyer frenzy out there. We're seeing less multiple offers, just like you, um, just like you suggested, Dan. So that's you guys have your finger on the pulse, man. That's exactly I, what's going on out there. So is that frightening? Are we supposed to worry about that? If are, I mean, I guess with rates. 
going up, but price is still going up. If we cool the activity and, you know, we just shared 50%, nearly 50% of homes that closed in June were, were marketed for less than a month. Um, if it was truly overheated, are we just adjusting to normal and we should be okay with a little bit of less frenzied buyers and less cutthroat transactions with hasty decisions? Or are we supposed to think that maybe we're heading into uh, what we all didn't want to happen, this environment slowing down the housing market? No, I, I think you had it right. Um with the first analogy, I, I think that it's it would be healthy for this market to cool off a little bit, to have a little bit more balance between the, the buyers and sellers. The fact is we still have a lack of inventory. I mean, San Luis has less than two months of inventory currently. There's less than 100 listings, and and we're closing around 50 a month. So, you know, that's, that, that's not a healthy level of inventory. And I think I, – I, I feel like a lot of buyers may have just kind of gotten tired of the pace. And um, it'll be interesting to see what this increase in, in interest rates do to inspire them to, um, to act. But I, I think that if we, if we did have just a little bit more reasonable market where uh, there was a bit more balance between supply and demand, that, that would be very healthy. And I just don't see enough signs to, to point to this thing going um, rapidly in the other direction. I, I just don't Yesterday, think there's a catalyst for that. Yesterday, I had a client in my office that just came back from his home inspection, and he was pretty bummed that they found some significant trouble with the roof, and he was being encouraged by people to walk away from the transaction, and he said, you know, we don't actually really like this house at all. The trouble is there's nothing else for sale for us, you know, that meets our needs, our basic standards, and... um yeah, that, that seems to me that's a that's a problem of inventory. How come there's not enough homes for sale in San Luis? Well, I don't I don't know the answer to that. It, you know, when this recovery first started, there the one of the big challenges was was move up buyers. Nobody was moving up into the next product class because everyone's equity had magically disappeared. But I don't really know what it's going to take to to change the inventory levels in San Luis. I mean, new construction obviously around the country is going to play a role in this inventory issue, but I don't think we can expect to, to have new inventory, uh, new homes answer our inventory issues in, in San Luis Obispo. Um, so I, I don't know what it's going to take. I think continued appreciation, which may eventually afford people the opportunity to take a step up into the next product class, that would be, um, that would be encouraging and good for the market as well. But the, the other thing that, that your buyer that you just – use in it as an example is suffering from is that if he doesn't buy this house and it takes him you know six months to find another one that he that he's uh, able to successfully negotiate an offer on well he, at, at this at the current market pace he's going to pay seven percent more for the for that next house in in six months and <laughs> that's another thing that keep that keep these um these buyers kind of uh in in that uncomfortable place of, of pursuing houses under a with more aggression than they're comfortable with and kind of forcing decisions that they might not make if, if the market weren't frenzied. So I, I think most of, I and most of my colleagues really welcome a bit of a slowdown. I mean, it, it just, it seems unhealthy to have um, the, the forces that come to play in a frenzied market um, engaged. So 
I, I hope that this thing cools off just a little. I think we we have the solid fundamentals to continue to see appreciation, and that's what we want. We want a, a healthy rate of, of appreciation, not something that's unsustainable and forcing people to make decisions that are um, that are not rational. Yeah, and when you hear a statistic like still ha half of all homes are selling in under 30 days, I don't think we're quite yet to normal yeah, but I'm I'm curious, Wes. You brought up a couple points that didn't seem to, um, didn't seem to, to jive with me here. You said that peop, the consumer out there, the home buyer, is concerned that if they wait six months, homes will will continue to go up in price, so they'll pay more for for the home. And I th I think there's a general consensus that home buyers and, and consumers in general believe that interest rates are c going to continue to trend higher. So if both of those pressures are on buyers, why why are we seeing a waning um, interest out it there? It seems like it should force them into the gates going, you know what, I'm getting it today for 7% less and I'm getting these rates locked in before the rates go through the roof. Yeah, so was there a consensus at your office meeting as to why the activity seems to have slowed a little? No, actually, that's uh, and it's a great question, especially framed the way you framed it, Dan. Um, and, and it may be it may be coming. I don't know. Do you guys think that maybe the way that interest rates spiked so rapidly a few weeks ago just scared some people into yes. a position of wait and see, and and that now as the dust settles and, and the reality of you know it, it, the likelihood of interest rates climbing at a more reasonable pace in the near future, maybe maybe we'll have the the um, cause that you're describing and forcing well, and a lot of those buyers back into the market. I don't know. Maybe a lot of the buyers that, that were really uh, hot to trot just got out there and, and you know, got stuff bought and, and, and or just tired of the process. Well, I, I can... It's, it's a good question, and, and I understand, you know, you're, you're trying to use the, the logic of, um, of everything to, to explain it, and, and I don't have the answer, and, and my agents were kind of scratching their heads about it, too. So I think it's one of those things where we're going to have to... We're gonna have to wait and see what happens over the next 30, 60 days, and uh, well, and, and I can we'll come to understand better. I can offer you this as a loan officer's perspective, um, and it's not just limited to to my view within our company because I have peers that work at other lending institutions around the county here. Um, most of us loan officers feel like rates went up so quickly and so dramatically that it has to be a fluke and settle back down once everybody sobers up. And if this did happen strictly because of words that Bernanke gave that were mis, if not misunderstood, at least misreacted to, um, he did try to lay out some expectations that, hey, yeah, at some point if the data keeps up going hot and looking good, we are going to have to begin to taper and slow things down. Um, they kept trying to pin him down to a date, and, and now they've spent a month trying to undo the damage done. So from a loan officer's perspective, I got to believe that it's going to work, that, that they're going to figure out how to pacify the investors and that rates are going to ease back down. Hey, and who wants to be the knucklehead that at when, when rates popped a whole percent in a matter of two weeks where 
they haven't gone up by 1% now. I mean, rates have been on the steady decline for over six years. So who wants to be the guy that rushes out and locks in a 30-day escrow or a 45-day escrow and is then forced to accept these higher rates than, than what everybody that's in the industry or advising them is basically saying it's got to come back down. It's going to come back down. So I do think um, for people that are utilizing financing to the degree of which they're cautious is going to vary with the individual, but everybody's got to be reeling a little bit just thinking that, you know, rates were all day long, three and three eights. You could get three and three eights at no points. And now all of a sudden you walk into the shop and people are talking about having you pay fees at the four and a quarter, four and three eights level. I mean, it's, that's got to make you want to chill and see what happens. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, it's a good point. And I, I, I do think that um, you know, all of these factors point to, to buyers staying active and, um, and the market continuing to appreciate. So that's, that's why I say I don't think we're on the cusp of um, you know, the busting of some kind of proverbial bubble or anything like that. Well, hey, Wes, we appreciate you calling in and sharing your thoughts with us. Um, Keep up the good work, guys. Hey, hey I also thanks. wanted to just tell you really quickly, you looked great on KSBY the other night. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. thanks. We, have, we have long known you to be an expert in the local real estate community, and now our friends at KSBY have, have shown that as well by asking you to talk about the county housing market, getting your opinion. That was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for mentioning it, Dan. <laughs> All right. Enjoy your weekend, Wes. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. I saw the video on KSBY.com after, um, after it aired live. And it was kind of funny. In fact, I guess live radio just wouldn't have been the appropriate way to do it. I meant to bust Wes up about it a little bit and just kind of give him some ribbon. Because um, they spelled his name wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> I can't, it's been a couple weeks now since I saw it, but I can't remember exactly what was said. Wes made a comment, and then it was one of these interviews where the newscaster said, and he thinks it's due to X, Y, and Z. And then they would take what Wes actually said, and it was like totally misrepresented. What <laughs> Wes's words were, were was not what the guy had said. And I forget one of them, but it was a, it was a pretty awesome contradiction. I'll, I'll have to figure it out. But anyway, Wes did a great job. It was just, you know, hey, that TV stuff's hard. Yeah, yeah, it's not easy. You got to be seen and heard on TV. So as I was digging around trying to find some other housing statistics, I came across the Pulte Group, which is a large home builder in, in the country, um, and their president and CEO, Richard, I don't know how to say his last name, Dugas, Dugas? Spell it. D-U-G-A-S. Rich, we're going to call him Rich today. Dugas. Um, he says that the housing market, the U.S. housing market, continues to gain momentum and remains solidly on track towards a sustained long-term recovery. Even the recent rise in interest rates has had little effect on overall activity as consumers continue to perceive good values amidst limited supply and generally rising sales prices, uh, combined with the reality of high lease rates in the rental market. Given these market dynamics, consumers are continuing to exhibit a sense of urgency in their desire to purchase a new home. Huh. Um, so 
it's it's his belief that the environment, the higher rate environment, isn't changing things at all. But we've established our own feelings, and Wes has shared his company's feelings. And all of this is just anecdotal, but we've all noticed a downturn in activity, just slightly, not not so much of a downturn that it's alarming, but enough that it's noticeable. One of the pieces I brought was um, a guy from Naroff Economic Advisors, their chief economist. He said that um, the jump in new home sales is great news, but whether it was due to growing demand or fears of even higher mortgage rates is not clear. It's too early to say that higher rates will not slow down the housing market, he said. Um, it's just interesting to me that on all fronts, people are talking about this. And, you know, my experience is generally the things that I worry about don't come to fruition. It's the things I never contemplated that <laughs> blindside me on a Tuesday morning, you know. So, and, you know, and again, to put the rate thing into context, interest rates going up by 1% from 3 and 3 eighths to 4 and 3 eighths, that's not that big of a deal. It hurts the people that were directly transacting business at that point if they weren't locked or they missed their lock or they were just procuring a contract uh, because it's a it's a psychological battlefield when you're told, hey, uh, bad news. I know you're seeing it on TV, you're seeing it in the news, you're seeing it all over the place, but you have gotten into contract or you've applied for a refi on a day where... Rates are a half a point worse today than they were yesterday, which is a half a point worse than the day before, which is a half a point worse than the day before. So what do you want to do? Do you just lock that in and say, you know what? I knew this was going to happen and it's going to keep going through the roof and I'm taking what I can get today. Most of the time, not. Most of the time people go, well, how about we kick back for a second and see what happens? And if you did that, we figured this out, what, a couple weeks ago, Dan, that it was like was it six or eight points? It was some ungodly amount of points. Yeah, it was that range. To to save the rate you had in May 1st, um, in, in this like second week of July or first week of July, you would have had to pay like six or eight points, somewhere in that range. Um, that's ridiculous. So a lot of people, I think, then just kind of like get in this like standoff mode. And the trouble is, you know, in hindsight, in retrospect, yeah, you probably would have locked way back when, when it was only a point worse or two points worse or three points worse, but you just can't know that. And like I said, it's it's the general mindset of most of us in the industry that that the rates probably have to come back down. A little bit, but still, I, I think... They're the, not going back. The bigger point is that rates are still incredibly low. There was a, a statement from Forbes recently that even at a 5% interest rate... Um, Owning is still cheaper than renting. Across the nation, it's a it's about a 30% lower price for you to own than rent across the country, oh. even at 5%. So it doesn't seem to be alarming the big home builders that, that rates have risen. Yet there's some something unexplained at this point as to why activities wane a little. It's just funk in the air. We'll try to figure it out in, in the next hour of Mortgage Matters. Do stick with us, and we do want to invite your phone calls at 543-8830. We'll be right back.
All right, everybody, welcome back to Mortgage Matters. Folks, listen up. You have responsibilities now. This is the uh, second hour of the show. This is the hour where we expect that you're going to weigh in on the conversation. We expect to hear from you. Don't let us down. 543-8830 is the number. Surely you have some kind of a an opinion or question or something. Let us work on something. Uh, at some point in the first hour of the show, we got a caller who sounded like they had a little bit of a meltdown over an FHA transaction, something not quite going right in escrow. I wasn't positive what, exactly what the question is, so it's hard for me to, to speak to that. Issues with the closing, I think, basically. You said FHA issues with the seller? Seller's responsibilities or something like yeah, this. Purchasers. You know, I... The the only thing I could really think, so maybe we get a call back and clarify the question a little bit. Um, there isn't really too much that the seller is responsible for in an FHA transaction. Um, the only thing that's really different about it than a conventional transaction is that the utilities need to be on because the appraiser is responsible for testing the functionality of the the um, the heater and the water heater um and checking the water and the faucets and stuff to make sure that stuff all functions well but otherwise well there's also condition of property there are required repairs if the property doesn't meet certain standards in an fha transaction whereas on conventional you can do an as-is sale as long as there's not any obvious health or safety issues yeah so perhaps maybe some repairs could have fouled up a sale and you know dispute over who's going to pay for the repairs the buyer or the seller that yeah, comes up from time to time that does come up from time to time as far as a, a transaction where a seller has to be a little bit more concerned about the buyer and the kind of loan they're using is in in the va loans uh we don't see a ton of va loans in san luis obispo here which is surprising to me because i feel like i i see a lot of people that are in the services out cruising around, I mean, I see them in their, their camo attire going one place or another. But um, if you sell a house and your would-be buyer is going to utilize VA financing, there's a couple of things that you got to know about it. And, and hopefully your realtor is doing a good job of keeping you in the know about it. But, you know, those require a termite report. Um, some people don't realize that every single VA loan, every single transaction, even on a refi, you have to have a termite report and the property has to be clear of findings in both section one and two. And the seller has to pay for section one. Nobody else is allowed to. The section two stuff again has to be clear, but that's negotiable. Anybody can pay for that. The realtors or the buyer even can pay for that. So that can be a little added expense to the seller if you're, you know, if it gets written up that the seller will provide a a termite report and clearance showing section one and two items um, clear of any findings. That could cost the seller a little bit of money. The other thing is that the seller must pay for the entire escrow fee. Um, you're, you're as the buyer, as a veteran, you're not allowed to split the escrow fee with the seller, which is pretty customary in most every other transaction. Um, and then otherwise, there's some other little things, but they don't really concern the seller. They're more between the bank and the the veteran fees that can't be charged, kind of looking out and protecting the veteran. Um, but in either case. 
I would suggest that if you know those things, it's not that big of a deal. Not a big deal to do a VA loan um, or accept a VA. You know, and, and honestly, I didn't even plan on talking about this today, but this has been one of the things that's bothered me a little bit is that um, there's this general sentiment among sellers that you don't want to sell your house to a veteran. It's a the loan's a pain in the butt and it ends up costing you a bunch of money and you just shouldn't do it. And and that's not right. I mean, that's a that's like some kind of discrimination against a, a class of borrowers that, if anything, deserve maybe some extra consideration, right? So I hope that most everybody will let go of that notion and realize that it's not very different and for the most part it may cost the seller an extra on the low side maybe it costs them an extra thousand bucks and on the high side maybe it costs them an extra couple thousand bucks if that's true then re reflect that in your counter offer back to that veteran that hey because you're a veteran you know I I'm not going to accept your rock bottom price you're going to have to come up a little bit or something but just saying that I I wouldn't want to sell my house to a veteran is is not a good practice. I'd, I'd like to discourage people from that. Yeah. What do you got, dude? Well, <clears throat> I was thinking back this week, uh, we attended the local camp chapter meeting. There's, yes. a, there's a board meeting. It's a monthly, um, Monthly meeting that the California Association of Mortgage Professionals, the local Central Coast chapter, um, has. So we share. We, we talk about a lot of things that affect the mortgage community, from compliance to changes in loan programs, um, compensation changes. I mean, there's a, a wide array of topics that we talk about. This month, we focused on mortgage insurance. And we had a great presentation by um, a lady who's been in the mortgage insurance world for, I, th I think it was close to 25 years. Uh, wow, you went way low. I, th I think that's what she said. Before she, she was in escrow. She didn't want to name how many years she's been with Radiant. She didn't want to give away her age. I think she didn't want to, but she did. I think she said 25 years. I think it's like 40, dude. <laughs> Anyways, this lady knows her stuff. Um, so we had a great presentation on what's new with mortgage insurance and um, the differences between mortgage insurance on conventional versus FHA versus VA. There was one topic in this presentation that really struck a chord with me uh, that has come up from time to time in these past five years where we have these counterproductive moves that go on as we're trying to help an industry recover the housing industry recover. And, and the surprising thing this week is that because of different new interpretations of, of high cost loans, you know, that's a big issue in, in the mortgage world is the charges to a consumer for getting mortgage financing. There are limits on what can be charged. Um, and mortgage insurance is being looked at as as one of those charges that can contribute to excessive fees. So bottom line is there's, there's a couple of different mortgage insurance options. And one of them that's actually the cheapest option, but it's paid in a lump sum because it's a lump sum payment is being looked at and, and 
as possibly being an overcharge to the borrower and might go away, although it is the cheapest option for mortgage insurance, it's a pretty frustrating thing to hear that at the end of this year, that, that mortgage insurance option may be going away for the consumer. I feel like there's been a lot of stuff like that lately. That, and that's the most frustration, the most frustrating thing for me in just watching the regulation and all of the changes and everything come down is that most of these things are well-intended trying to figure out how to protect the consumer, trying to figure out how to keep the costs down to the consumer, keep things fair. Um, most of them have had the opposite effect. All of the compliance stuff, for example, I was reading about compliance just this morning um, and how mortgage banks are dealing with compliance and how they are um, having just basically what it translates to is extra staff and extra overhead. And they're not going to let that cut into their profit. So all they do is just add it right in. It's a pass through right to the borrower. You know, there's, this is now what the overhead is with this additional personnel. And this is how much money we need to make per loan and take it to the street. So lots of things like that have caused increased costs to the borrowers um, already. The appraisal thing was successful in many ways um, from sort of removing the uh, influence of the loan officer or the banker onto the appraiser. Um, and and that was a that was a, a worthwhile, I think, policy, some some good law changes to try to create some just a little bit of buffer between the two. I think that's smart. Um, but it made it more expensive to the consumer. The other thing that it did with all of these appraisal management companies, it made appraisals not transferable. And that's that's wildly disappointing. Um, if you buy an appraisal and you go through the appropriate channel, you sh that should be honored kind of anywhere you go. They followed national law to do it with a person that's properly licensed, insured, and accredited. Why not? And And the answer boils straight back to profit. The banks make more money if they can make you buy a new one. So as I add up so many of the changes, I see the intention. I see actually quite a bit of positive effect. I also see a lot of costs get passed through the consumer that um, I guess is just the price of doing business. This mortgage insurance one that you're talking about, it's particularly frustrating to me. It's basically for the guy that doesn't want to have mortgage insurance for an indefinite amount of time, 24, 36, 48 months. Hopefully it's going to go away, but you don't really know when. And what if it just doesn't shape up the way that you want it to and you can't make extra payments or the, you know, I hear people say, well, I'm, when I sell my business in two years, I'm going to use that to pay my mortgage down. And, you know, what if the business is worth less or, the money's needed in another place or something. It just doesn't always shape up the way you want. So having it for an indefinite amount of time is less attractive than people that see the benefit in just paying a good lump sum up front to say, you know, if I pay you 200 bucks a month, that's, that's going to be $2,400 a year. And if I have to do that for five years, you know, now all of a sudden we're talking like X amount of dollars I'm going to pay you. And the mortgage insurance companies will allow you, you know, rather than paying $12,000 over five years, they'll just say, hey, you, how about you give us four grand today? And 
It's a risk for you because what if you end up having to sell that house in a year or two? But the average Californian keeps their mortgage for five years, stays in their home for five years. So the when you look at the offset of the upfront buyout of mortgage insurance versus the monthly cost, it usually does pay off around two or three years. So on average, that's the cheaper way to go. That's generally the better way to go. But because it's a, a single lump sum at the beginning of the transaction, they're factoring that entire fee into the high cost calculation yeah, and so, looking at it as, as excessive fees. So specifically what these laws are trying to do is, is create like a blanket maximum of how much uh, a consumer can pay to get a loan. And it, hey, I, can, I think I could vote for that. I can get behind that. I don't want to see people getting gouged, right? I, I don't want to see people being taken advantage of and paying more than they should have to. Um, I, I believe that the fair market competition, somebody having that right to go shopping and figure out what their options are should be able to shake most of that out. Um, so... Oh, I'm all for it. Let's cap it. Let's not let people make four or five, six percent on a 80 year old lady. Got it. I support it 100 percent. What constitutes what goes into that that three percent cap or that four percent cap? And and by the way, when you're talking and this is where this stuff always gets hairy and this is how they're going to ruin another segment of the market. Three percent of an eighty thousand dollar loan is. I mean, what are we talking? Twenty four hundred bucks. Title and escrow and appraisal are kind and underwriting fee. Those are kind of fixed rate costs. They're they don't really vary widely from one loan amount to the next. They're fixed regardless of how much you borrow. I mean, title and escrow varies a little bit. I'll concede on that, but you're gonna soak up three points right there. So if if those are in there. Um, you know, basically, you're gonna you're gonna tell these loan officers, hey, you know what? When somebody calls you for an eighty thousand dollar loan, don't even call them back. There's no point. And and I hate that. That that that's going to happen. We're going to find ways that these guys are able to hurt those people. And and I would argue that folks with an eighty thousand dollar loan are generally the people that do benefit the most from the help. Are our fixed income retirees that are living on social security and a small pension or something, if they can refinance their $80,000 loan to get, uh, to save a hundred bucks a month, that can be a game changer for them. You know, it helps them afford their copay on their prescriptions or something. And, you know, then at the flip side of the coin, if somebody's doing a million dollar loan, the 3% cap is 30,000 bucks. So it's like, Hey, all lights are green on this side. Make as much money as you possibly can. We don't care. And it's just, I I just can't imagine how they're going to make this fall into place in a way that doesn't really damage some segment of the population. And sadly, it'll be the lower income people that are the ones that are damaged. Well, we would love to hear from you. Uh, Questions or comments are welcome by calling 543-8830, 543-8830. We've got another local real estate expert, Greg Astle, on the line. Hey, guys. Welcome How to the show. You? Doing good. How are you? Doing good. 
Hey, I uh, just turned in a couple minutes ago. I, I don't know how deeply you've gotten into appraisal, but I know you touched on it here regarding the uh, the changes in the in the uh, approach and the regulations that have uh, been instituted over the last few years. And I guess I, I'm calling to see, get your take on how appraisal the, the process is playing out given the dynamics of the market that we're in over the past, say, you know, 12 to 24 months. What, what are you seeing in terms of the appraiser's ability to keep up with uh, rapidly rising values in certain segments of the marketplace? And then I've got a, just an observation that I'd share with you, too. Um, in all of the appraisals that I see, so first of all, if there's any one common thread I could say about all purchase clients lately, and I don't know if it's the realtors doing it to them or what, but all purchase clients that we work with lately are super anxious about the appraisal. They can't wait for when it comes in and to know that it was good enough. Um, did you order the appraisal yet? When is it going to be inspected? When is it due? Have you received the appraisal yet? It's like this mayhem that just concerns the buyer like no other issue um so that being said it's always a tension running high kind of issue but um i'd have to say that we don't see a lot of short appraisals um from the from how it happens on our side and this is going to be consistent with most every loan originator when we place the order we're required to upload the purchase contract. They need to review the purchase contract for um, concessions made by the seller. You know, if they're including some kind of property or um, excluding certain types of things, or if they're making concession towards the buyer's closing costs, that could have an indication, you know, or some ramification on the final value. So they always know what the buyer is paying. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd venture to guess that 90 out of 100 times we see the appraisal come back at the purchase price. Um, and and we haven't had a single instance where the appraisal came back at the purchase price and then was deemed unacceptable by anybody. Um, that's, that's just not happened yet. Um, so altogether, I'd have to say that it's okay. I mean, it, other than the fact that it's a little bit more expensive and seems to cause people a lot of stress, it's it's been fine. Huh. Well, um, that's interesting. I I I have one one. Well, it, it's a particular area that I work in in Morro Bay, where there has been a a radical jump in values in the sub, you know, the sub five hundred thousand uh, dollar market. Uh, and, and now it's reaching over the $500,000 mark. But I've, I, I've witnessed a an appraisal, a piece of property that had been appraised in September of last year at $475,000, and that was a uh, that was a fee appraisal done at the request of the the property owners to get a feel for what uh, the real property value was. The property was marketed. Um, about six months later at exactly, well, actually $125,000 more than that appraised value. And the property sold for about $20,000 more than that full price, full list price. So there was a, and the, the numbers were appropriate. I mean, the, the $475,000 appraisal in September of last year 
uh, was appropriate at the time, and the sales price of uh, $612,000, I think it was, <laughs> was, in my opinion, highly inflated, yet there were multiple buyers, and the strange part to me was that uh, it was a financed purchase, and wow. it appraised. So out of curiosity, what area of Morro Bay was that property in? It was, it was in Morro Heights. Okay. Yeah, Morro Heights. Wow. So, uh, and, and I know the market well enough to know that we have not seen that kind of advancement in prices in that period of time. Hey, yeah. well, you know what now, though? You got a good comp. Well, I know. <laughs> it you paves know the road. Here, the strange thing is I had a sale in the same vicinity uh, just on the heels of this one. And my appraiser was literally waiting for the close on that transaction so he could use that comp in the appraisal on my transaction. Mm -hmm. Which, um, I, anyway, it, it, it took this whole arm's length separation of appraiser and uh, lender and realtor and just kind of, to me, it sort of uh, it, it undermines it all. It really did. And, and I, I have witnessed the the, the efforts of uh, appraisers and lenders and realtors to try to maintain the supposed integrity of the new guidelines, and it's pretty much a, a bunch of baloney. Um, if anything, it has caused a lot more uh, heartburn and difficulties for the parties involved. Sure. Uh, uh, because an appraiser came out and missed a, missed a couple of key items on his first two efforts visiting the property. He had to come out for a third inspection, and that ended up ratcheting the cost of the appraisal up to nearly $900. And guess who had to pay that? Mm-hmm. You know? So yeah. I, it's pretty frustrating. Yeah, those kind of stories definitely do occur. But, you know, I my general feeling is that for the most part it feels fine, Um you guys, I think, in knowing who the appraiser is prior to the report happening and then getting some of that knowledge where, I mean, because don't, from time to time, don't appraisers call you and say, um, hey, when is this thing set to close and these kind of things because they're wanting to use that in their arsenal. You kind of see a little bit behind the scenes of that in ways that we don't. I don't. I don't get many. I'm pretty much a listing agent. I don't do a ton of transactions, but I do a fair number, and I've got a pretty good handle on the market in, in the in the county. And I get calls from appraisers, but they're usually calling about closed business. They're usually calling about transactions that have closed in the last one, two to six months, uh, trying to get an idea as to condition and and so on of the subject property that they're calling about. Yeah. Um, Another, if I, if we've got time, I've got another yeah. little question for you. Yeah, yeah. What, at what point does the size of the buyer's down payment start to trump the appraisal? Uh, you, the, I think you know what I mean. Yeah, and the correct answer is, um, and I was dealing with this just this week with another client that's got about a fifty percent down payment, right? right? So, so here's the deal, and and. Just real quick, I think I got to define a couple of things for people that are listening. Um, in the loan world, we always calculate loan to value. And this literally is the loan amount um, as it relates to the value of the property. So if we have an 80% loan to value, we may owe $400,000 or borrow $400,000 against um, 
a four hundred and eighty thousand dollar house, right? That that loan to value then of eighty percent is is a really magic number because that's where the mortgage insurance comes into play. So there's kind of two separate issues here. Number one is if you end up at less than eighty percent, you have mortgage insurance. If you end up, uh, I'm sorry, more than eighty percent loan to value of mortgage insurance unless you don't. So that's a really critical number. So let's just say now, and, and by the way, loan to value is always calculated on the lesser of the sales price versus the appraised value. Okay. So if these guys get into contract in this scenario, I'm going to work on this 400 and 480 level. Let's say they get into contract for 480 and your buyer is going to get a $400,000 loan and they get an appraisal and the appraisal comes in for 460. Now, they have a maximum borrowing power of 80% on the 460. Um, so that additional down payment is going to need to be made. And so instead of borrowing 400, now they're borrowing 392. Or I'm, I'm kind of guessing at that number, but I think it's close. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have to pony up some extra dough to keep their loan to value at 80%. Now let's take that same transaction with somebody that's got a pretty fat down payment of 50%. They go from buying the house for four eighty. They're going to put two hundred forty thousand dollars down, and now the house appraises for two or for four sixty. It doesn't even matter. They're not pushing into any loan of value. They're not up against anything. There's just no bearing on it. So they, it's kind of a moot point. Call it whatever you want to call it. They're well within the guidelines, and it has really no ramification for them. I mean, okay. the, the lender will generally ask for a letter of motivation from the buyer saying, why do you want to pay more for a house than it's worth? And if they just write back, you know, we realize it's dumb, but we really like it. That's good right. enough. Um, right. so, so that's the thing. It comes, it comes into where the buyer's falling in, in that, you know, and just as a, an aside, not to complicate the matter any, but there's different price adjustments on your interest rate if you're a 50 percent loan to value versus a 65 or a 70 or a 75 or an 80 so more than just the 80 percent on the mortgage insurance it could change your closing costs a little bit you know maybe by a quarter of a point or something up in the mix if if the appraisal comes in a little bit short but um yeah i was going to chime in on that assuming the borrower has good credit which i would define as 740 or higher credit score <clears throat> um, a 75% down payment, I'm sorry, a 75% or lower loan to value generally right. falls in the same closing cost category. So as long as there's a 25% down payment, anything more than that doesn't change the, the pricing hits, if you will, on, on that loan. Okay. And, and then at some point, the, the, the numbers involved, it becomes kind of, uh, silly to try to calculate if somebody's got 50 percent down calculating the loan to value and how how off the appraisal would have to be for the size of the down payment to come into play sort of gets kind of ridiculous to try to calculate yeah but and in all cases i tell my clients um early and often don't worry about this until it comes to fruition you know right. these appraisals like you were you were just making a great case about that place in Morro Bay where it out of left field listed and sold and appraised for a lender's file for significantly more than we thought was justifiable. Right. 
that kind of stuff happens. And if you know, you can shake your head and roll your eyes, but it goes through. And so I just tell people, don't don't waste energy on the things you can't control. And if the appraisal comes in short, when we're at the helm, um, we generally get the parties together and figure out what the options are. You know, right. in one case, my borrower may be able to pay the difference, and sometimes he can't. And we need the seller might be a really reasonable seller that says, "Hey, I I want to sell it for what's fair too." And if this neutral third party valued it for four sixty instead of four eighty, you know, let's cut it to four sixty. And sometimes people are a little um, less altruistic in that matter, and they say, "Well, let's split it." You know, we agreed on 480. Now it's worth 460. How about we go 470 and I'll split it with you? There's always really creative ways to overcome that. And I've yet to have a transaction blow up on my desk over an appraisal coming in short in a in a purchase transaction. It just hasn't happened yet. We generally always figure a way out. So. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I think that should put a lot of. Uh, I think there are a lot of realtors. I think you're right. We we have tended to uh, over amplify the the impact of the changes in appraisal law, and uh, and I think the last couple of months have shown us that that's maybe the tempest in the teapot that we really don't need to worry about. Yeah, I I always try to encourage everybody to to just kind of let go of that a little bit that it is what it is and it's out of our control. And until we have the numbers in front of us, we're, we're sort of spinning ourselves out over things that we can't manage anyway. So, Hey, Greg, thanks so much for calling today. It's always a pleasure. Thank you guys. Have a good one. For those of you guys that, um, liking what you hear, I am going to give a nod to Greg. It's totally unsolicited, but I know him personally. He's a fantastic guy. Um, as he mentioned in the phone call, works on real estate, largely on the seller side, but I'm sure he'd help you with either. Um, he's out on the coast, works in Morro Bay, and um, you should give him a call if you have real estate needs out there. He's 423-SOLD. Can't forget that number. It's a great number. It's a good number. You had so. mentioned earlier that very few, you've seen very few appraisals blow up purchase transactions for you, and I think that it it's time there, there's this one methodology to valuing homes that's time tested and proven and it's that um the value of a home is what the market's willing to pay for yeah so a ready willing and able <laughs> buyer willing to pay i mean that's yep. that's got to be the fair market value right it's, it's one of the, the the best determining factors and that's why appraisal or uh appraisers ask for the purchase contract they want to see those terms and that's right. they want to know about the contract if there's any relationships things like that and yeah i i think um some of the concern that's out there over appraisal and a purchase transaction is a little overblown well and you know to be fair we in the lending side, you know, the the, sh- the changes were a major shakeup. It was like, wait, what? Because you remember, and this wasn't that long ago, but you remember how it went. We have the, we have a work history and experience with most appraisers in the county. Some of them are phenomenal. They're good at what they do. They take pride in what they do. They thorough. They're respectful. They show up on time to their appointments looking like they are um, have proper hygiene and attire to enter somebody's home. Um, and then there are some appraisers that are not. They, they make appointments and flake or they show up late. They show up. One customer called me one time and said they sent an appraiser 
um, in a bathrobe. And I'm like, surely not. It had to be some kind of a raincoat or something that just looked funny. Uh, but we're mortified that this was the kind of person. And, and so in the beginning, um, it, it really felt like the appraisers, just like any other service sector industry, if you um, suck at your job or you're gross and nobody wants to let you into their house, you're not going to – once we get that feedback or get to know you, you're, you're going to die on the vine. Um, you're not going to be getting enough business to stay busy and you kind of get cleansed from it. So the big fear was when the appraisal management companies came out that we were going to end up with uh, all of those guys having an equal foot in the door and maybe an equal market share. And we were going to be subject to dealing with all of these cut rate appraisers rather than um, the good appraisers that we knew to refer and, and to order business with. And 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 I one of my favorite appraisers ever left the state, took off and said, I'm not going to put up with this and, and is gone. And um, but you know, it's been fine. Those, those, uh, people still got chased out the gross people, the, the people that weren't punctual or professional, they still got chased out. They're not around and their management companies still aren't tolerating all that behavior. So it's okay. I mean, so in a lot of ways, I think we were all nervous about it. We all had an idea of how much crazy negative impact it was going to have. And in retrospect, for the most part, it's been okay. My big complaint is that it's cost the consumer now, on average, fifty percent more, thirty to fifty percent more <laughs> yeah. than it did before. And I, that wasn't nobody wanted that. Um, uh, we're gonna take a commercial break here. When we come back, we'll have about twenty more minutes with you, and we do want to invite your calls. You can give us a call five four three eight eight three zero five four three eight eight three zero. Ask a question or share a comment on or off the air. Um, but whatever you do, stick around for more Mortgage Matters. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. The state of denial is a drag and a trial. When I bought my cheap insurance, should have known this day would come. Now I've had an accident and I'm feeling quite alone. Called them at least 20 times, but they won't pick up the phone. Without personal service, my policy's kind of worthless. Get to a better state, State Farm. Switch to State Farm and you can save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley & Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley & Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley & Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC.
Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Welcome back. We got uh, the final segment here of the show. We're hoping to hear from some of you guys. We'd love to hear from you with questions. Um, give us a call at the studio over 543-8830. 543-8830. You don't have to go on the air, but you can ask your question and we can answer it. We like to do that. It's trying to be in a, a service-oriented show here. So uh, we got a phone call here to take. We got Steve calling from lovely San Luis Obispo. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Hi. Um, yes, I had a quick question, and I'd like to ask my question and then listen to you guys elaborate uh, off the air. Okay. Uh, my wife and I own a house free and clear in San Luis. It's valued at between, I would say, six hundred and $750,000. We have two sons, and we want to know what, is gonna, what hit are they going to take once we uh, leave the uh, seen and they uh inherit the house are they uh so what would be a good thing for them to do to uh rent it out or uh something uh just some general information of how they could attack this yeah steve just real quick before you go do you guys have a trust set up or yes we have a living trust okay all right good all right well thanks for the call appreciate it okay one of my kids just rode up on his motorcycle did you hear him skid no, I did. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll take the answer on the radio. Thank you very much. <laughs> Bye. So the uh, <laughs> hopefully the the kid outlives the parents here skating around <laughs> on motorcycles. I mean, this is kind of a opportunity here for a little reality check. <laughs> you know, my understanding is is that if the uh, if the property is properly protected in in the trust and received by the heirs that it should be able to uh especially without a loan to be able to function as they want and i guess it's it's in the end it's going to fall in the the kids whether or not they're in a unified front of do they want to keep it and have it as a rental property and split the rent and split the maintenance and split the management of the property uh, or do they one or both of them just want to sell it and, and cash out and um, I I'm not familiar enough with the um, you know the the tax side on that I, I think that that's a, a question probably better for an estate attorney but um, my advice would really be um, the best thing I could suggest for anybody in that position is to visit with an estate attorney and make sure that they have that uh, part really nailed down, getting it in a trust with the, the, the proper documentation so that it passes without having to go through probate um, and with minimal estate taxes as possible. But um, I don't have much more insight, Dan. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a difficult issue for us to tackle. I think an estate planning attorney is the right recommendation. Do you have anyone that you could you could offer up? Yeah, Brad Brad Liggett's a, my favorite local estate attorney, and he listens to the show quite a bit. So if he's out there, maybe he'll give us a call into the studio and, and answer the question. I'm not sure. I, I know that he has a new baby, so his listening time may have been cut back a little bit. There was a suggestion by Steve, you know, maybe the, the kids could – um, rent the property out. That's always a great thing to do with um, with real estate, especially when it's owned free and clear. It can generate some positive cash flow as well as, as well as some write off opportunities. Um, 
with depreciation. I got another. Like I got another call um, or question rather sent to me here, and I guess I'll I'll pose it to you as if it's my question, Dan. Um, a a would be borrower says, I got an offer from a lender. Um, to do a free appraisal, which normally costs four hundred and fifty dollars, should I go with them? Nothing's free. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's free in the mortgage world. There's a lot of um, gimmicky advertising in in the mortgage world. You know, companies are very good at making a free appraisal or. Um, a no-cost loan feel like a special offer specific for you that it's it's a one-time deal that if you respond today we'll pay for your yeah appraisal. it's just a limited time offer you know we 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 have this short window of opportunity to to offer you this great unusual um, cost savings that that's not true the the reality is is that the there's nothing free in the mortgage world you you always pay for it whether you know it or not. Um, it, it's it's great that in a that a mortgage company would offer to pay your appraisal. You're likely going to pay for that appraisal in the form of some other fee or some higher interest rate. That's the reality. Yeah, and honestly, I think here's here's the bigger part of it too. This is what I would advise this person. Look at the fine print on the solicitation you received. The appraiser gets paid at the time that they um, do the job usually in the first week of the loan transaction. So if you've been offered um, a free appraisal by a lender, generally what they do is have you pay for the appraisal out of pocket. And then at the close of the loan, they'll credit you what the uh, appraisal fee was in, in some other form of closing cost credit. But Dan, as you mentioned, it, it comes in way of um, a higher interest rate or something else. It, it, you just couldn't expect um, a, a mortgage company to be of the mindset where they just want to go through and lose three to five hundred dollars per transaction each time just for sake of being nice. There's it's always a catch, and yeah. I think this is the part where I feel like most people really lose lose context with how these things work. And I give this, I give this. Um, rundown here from time to time on the show and to me at least in my mind it's really simple so i'll make it i'll make it as simple as i can for you so we're going totally hypothetically right now but let's just say that after running your credit and looking at your property type and calculating and making sure you qualify doing the whole thing let's just say that your interest rate with no points so you're you're not paying origination charges to the lender at all um, that your loan is no points. It's it's no no closing costs there for points. It's a four point two five percent. If you're willing to pay points, let's say four percent, then may cost you one point. So on your three hundred thousand dollar loan, you say, well, I could get four percent if I give you three thousand um, dollars. I know well enough to know that you need to evaluate how much that's going to save you. What's the difference in monthly payment from 4% to four and a quarter? Um, does it justify spending $3,000? There's also the other relationship here, which is you can get a closing cost credit 
if you go from four and a quarter percent up to say four and a half percent, when you when you accept the higher interest rate, uh, you will get a closing cost credit, and that's how the appraisal or the title and escrow fees or some other third party is paid for um, the work they do in your transaction. Every single lender in the nation has the ability to do this. The difference is it, it breaks down to the profitability of your company. If you're some companies like, you know, in my first hypothetical here, I got 4% for one point, four and a quarter for no points and four and a half for a negative one point credit. Okay. Let's skip to company B. They may be not even offering four and a quarter. They're doing four and a half at one point, four and three quarters at no points, and 5% at a one point credit. So at the end of the day, the closing costs in those transactions are going to end up equal, but the interest rates are not even comparable. And that, that is the kind of savvy that a consumer needs to be when they're shopping around. So my experience is when you go to a lender that is offering, hey, if you respond to this ad and do this deal with me, you're going to get a free appraisal. You've arrived at the company that is naturally charging more and they market on gimmicks rather than on um, good reputation and just sound lending practices. They're looking for people that fall for clever marketing and want to do, you know, the kind of person that feels like they get something for nothing. What? What's that? $450 value. I, I don't want to lose money on this deal. Yeah, the bottom line is you need to you, you can't answer that question of should I go with them because they're offering the free appraisal until you see a good faith estimate of fees and um, compare the note rate and the cost for that note rate. Another good tool for you to shop is the truth in lending disclosure, and that discloses the APR to you. Um, the APR is is probably the best single metric for deciding which loan is the better option for you. It factors in the note rate, the, so the rate of interest that you're going to pay on the loan, and the fees that you're going to pay on the loan, and it amortizes all of those loan costs over the full term of the loan to give you the annual percentage rate. So that's your best um, tool to shop for your mortgage. That's a That was a... Um I, I always really actually like that topic a lot and a great question. Um, I, I love to, to get down and talk about the um, advertising tendencies of mortgage companies because I don't think they intend it to be deceptive. I think they actually intend you to respond to them and do a loan you know, with them, but it, it's not always uh, starting on you know a level playing field as far as the knowledge goes. One other thing that we were talking about earlier in the show, Dan, I just want to touch on again before we quit out of here is you brought up mortgage insurance and uh, there's a there's an awful lot of um, so so let's summarize a couple points here on the show. Number one is real estate market, whether or not it's slowing down in volume or activity, the values themselves are still increasing. So if you bought a house or maybe refinanced a house within the last couple of years and you got mortgage insurance, I've got some ideas for you. And sadly, it's not something where it's just going to result in new business to me or the company because 
some of these solutions to getting rid of your mortgage insurance have nothing to do with a new loan. Um, so I just am wanting to reach out to any of you guys that have mortgage insurance and make the offer to you that, that we can talk to you about your mortgage insurance and what it might take to get out of that. Um, for example, if you have an FHA loan, your mortgage insurance will only go away after a minimum of five years and when your loan amortizes by way of normal amortization or principal paydowns, but your loan balance has to become at least 80% of its starting point. So your uh, if you got a if you got a loan, an FHA loan, and you ended up with uh, mortgage insurance, as they all do, and maybe you've inherited some money or you've been making extra payments or sold a business or some have some way to get below that 80% number, there's a way to make your mortgage insurance go away. But it's a, it's a, that's a special talk about an FHA loan on conventional loans. It's a bit of a different story. You can get your mortgage insurance to go away. They'll actually consider market appreciation in some cases. So let's say you bought your house for 500,000 and that was two years ago and now the house is in in the right neighborhood and all the perfect circumstances is now worth six hundred thousand dollars you could call your servicer and go through the the right steps to get your mortgage insurance removed um the most people believe that mortgage insurance is at the discretion of the mortgage insurance company hey you call your mortgage insurance company and say when can i cancel this that's a really, really common misconception. Mortgage insurance, that company is, is being advised completely by the servicer of your loan. They're dictating how long it's to remain in effect, what coverage it's to have, and when it can be canceled. So you can reach out to your mortgage servicer um, and get some help. We can help you with that. Sometimes they're at their discretion, they say no. Um, we're not going to cancel it. Um, and if we know that by appreciation, you've gained 20% equity, um, sometimes you just, we got to do a refi and these rates are a little bit higher than they were at the low of the lows, but it's not out of the question for people to refinance into, you know, four to four and a quarter, depending on circumstances, um, at reasonable closing costs. So if you, if you're at four and a quarter, uh, with mortgage insurance, it would be worth your while to refinance to four and a quarter and get rid of your mortgage insurance. Um, so any basically anybody with mortgage insurance, the different programs have different nuances. And we really just need to talk to you to hear about your specific transaction and be able to give you some good advice. So if you have mortgage insurance, give us a call this week. You can find us on the web. We're centralcoastlending.com. Um, by the way, the website's jam-packed full of amazing content and great articles. We put a, really a lot of effort into it and think that you'll really enjoy it. So go check out the web, centralcoastlending.com. The other option is, of course, you can give us a call on the landline. We're at 543-LOAN. Um, 543-LOAN will reach any of um, our four offices and all of our four offices, so you'll be sure to get a mortgage professional that can um, help you out and answer some of those questions, give you an idea of what to expect and what to plan for. Um, and then otherwise, we're always seeking good clients to um, 
to do uh, purchase transactions for. We, we're the purchase experts here on the Central Coast, and um, we just love to hear from you. So find us on the web, centralcoastlending.com. Call us, 543-LOAN. We'll be back next week. No, next week we're doing a rerun, so plan your weekend accordingly. Thanks for listening today. Hope you guys all have a fantastic week.